I'm Captain Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners of the 74th Annual Hunger Games. I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. My name is Optimus Prime. I am the Futurist of War. Resistance is futile. Jedi's strength flows from the force, but beware of the dark side. Oh. 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 Iron Man, that's kind of catchy. It's got a nice ring to it. I mean, it's not technically accurate. It's a gold titanium alloy. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello, everybody. This is Mark Daniels from the Great Pacific Northwest, and you are listening to Treks and Sci-Fi, episode 483, for Sunday, April 13th, 2014. I'm back this week with another classic science fiction movie. On this episode of Treks and Sci-Fi, I'm going to take a look at a movie from 1953. It's Invaders from Mars, starring Helena Carter, Arthur Franz, and Jimmy Hunt. Those of us of a certain age will remember this movie growing up. Before I get into the movie, I'd like to thank Rico for giving me another opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I'd also like to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoy it. With that said, I'm going to play the trailer to this movie. I'll be back after the trailer with some movie information, and then we'll get into the movie. from Mars. He saw them land from outer space. He saw them capture innocent people only to destroy. <laughs> Father turned against son. People changed into strange, weird animals. A general of the army becomes a saboteur. police turned into arsonists. The boy's parents changed into killers. But nobody's getting anywhere out there. Nobody can locate anything. Anybody. The Martians. We've got to stop the... Invaders from Mars, capturing humans at will for their own sinister purposes, turning them into diabolical instruments of destruction. Invaders from Mars, weird, fantastic beings of a super-intelligence, 
ruling a race of synthetic humans and pitting them against mankind's dream to conquer the universe. Come on, step on it. Search every tunnel. We gotta find Ronaldo and the kid. When the colonel gives a signal, get back here on the double. Invaders from Mars was released April 9, 1953. It has a running time of 78 minutes. It was directed by William Cameron Menzies. It was produced by Edward Albertson Sr. The story was by John Tucker Battle. The music was written and composed by Raoul Kraushair. I hope I said that right. It was filmed at Republic Studios in Hollywood, California, and it was distributed by 20th Century Fox. And here's the cast. Jimmy Hunt as David McLean. Helena Carter as Dr. Pat Blake. Arthur Franz as Dr. Stuart Kelston. Leif Erickson as George McLean. Hilary Brooke as Mary McLean. And Morris Ankrum as Colonel Fielding. Now let's get into the movie. Amateur astronomer David McLean is awakened from his sleep one night by a thunderstorm. He goes to his window and sees a large flying saucer land and disappear into the sandpit in his backyard. Dad! Dad! What is it, son? Something landed out beyond the trees, in the sandpit. A big bright light. What? Come on, it's out there now. I'll show you. Didn't Mother ask you to stay in bed? I did. I was asleep. It woke me up. There was a bright light that lit up everything and Dad landed right out there. You were dreaming. If a meteor fell, it would have wakened people up for miles around. But it didn't fall. It landed. I saw it. I don't know what it was, Dad. A spaceship or something. How big was it? As big as... Big uh, an airplane? Bigger! Well, uh, there's nothing out there now, is there? Not now, but there was. I saw it oh, and... you come on. Climb in bed, son. Now, look, son, you know this is all your imagination, don't you? But I saw it. Well, what did it look like? Well, I can't say exactly. First, there was this light. Then it faded. Then there's a humming noise. Look, I tell you what we'll do. The first thing when we get up, we'll go out and take a look. And if there's any flying saucer out there, we'll notify General Mayberry. Now, how's that? But... In the morning. Okay. <laughs> That's a fella. Good night, now. George McLean, David's father, decides to investigate David's story. As he heads out to the sand pit, he hears a strange sound and disappears into the sand. His wife, Mary, calls the police when George doesn't show up for breakfast. The two policemen arrive and begin to search for her husband. They head out to the sand pit and disappear into the sand. David comes down for breakfast and asks his mother where his father was. She tells him that his father went to work early, just as he walks through the door. Hi, Mom. Good morning, dear. Did you have a good sleep? Gosh, yes. What time is it? It must be nearly eight. Where's Dad? He left early. Oh, gosh. Dad, promise we'd go out. David, don't fuss this morning. Mother's tired. And Any she... chance for a cup of coffee? George, you're safe. I was so worried. 
What happened? I thought he'd gone to the plant. Never mind, David. What did happen to you? I stopped over to see Bill Wilson. In your pajamas? In my pajamas, obviously. But... Period. Where's your other slipper? I said period. Well, I guess we'd better tell those policemen. What policemen? I was so worried, George, I called the police. They're out there looking for you now. Go and call them, David, and tell them that you're... You stay where you are. Are they out there now? Yes. What happened, George? What is it? I wish you'd please learn to mind your own business. Sorry. Those policemen, they'll ask questions, and I can't. But what if they do? Why can't you Am tell me? Am I going to get my coffee? Say, Dad, when you're out there, did you see anything? Let's not start that flying saucer nonsense again. Hey, Dad. Now, what do you want? What happened to your net? It looks like there's a... Nothing. I, I caught it on a barbed wire fence. Barbed wire? But there isn't any barbed wire between... I caught it on barbed wire, I said. You get your clothes on. Yes, David, hurry and get dressed. I want you to do some errands. I'm sorry that I... That's your husband? Yes, I'm George McLean. I'm sorry my wife put you to so much trouble. Think nothing of it. You uh, feel all right? Yes, I'm fine. Well, then we won't report this. We'll forget the entire matter, won't we, Mary? Yes. Won't you have some coffee? Don't be silly, Mary. These gentlemen have some important work to do. Yeah, you too. Yes, I know. We'll see you around. What are you gaping at? What were those men talking about? As though you were in some kind of a plot Don't together. Don't talk nonsense, Mary. Thought I told you to get dressed. While looking through his telescope, David sees a neighbor girl, Kathy Wilson, disappear into the sand. He runs to tell his mother, but his father tells him that she is getting dressed. His father gives him a stern warning not to go spreading his stories about seeing a flying saucer land in the sand pit. David's father then takes David's mother to the sand pit. David then runs to Kathy Wilson's house. He tells Mrs. Wilson, Kathy's mother, that Kathy has disappeared into the sand. Moments later, Kathy reappears on her porch just as a fire is started in the basement of her house. Miss Wilson, Kathy's gone. Gone? Whatever you're talking about. Out by the sand pit. I saw it through the telescope. The ground opened up and something pulled her down. David, talk sense. Where is she? What's happened to her? It's the truth. Honest, Mrs. Wilson, there's something out there. The David, answer don't... me. Where is she? Nothing, Mother. I just picked you some flowers. Oh, David, how could you coming in here and scaring me to death? I'm sorry, Mrs. Wilson. I should think you would be, making up a story like I'm that. I'm sorry. And... Miss Wilson, Miss Wilson, your house is on fire! Now, David McLean, I... The fire department won't help. 
Someone spilled gasoline down there and the fire's spreading all over the place. That's impossible. We keep our spare gasoline in the garage. There's a can of gasoline on his side down there with a the top off and that's what's burning. Kathy, were you playing in the cellar? No, Mama. David then tries to tell Jim, the gas station attendant, but Jim just calls David's dad. David. You've got to help me. They got Kathy Wilson. They've done something to my dad. Who? What? I don't know, but I saw it. I saw it land out in the field. And now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You saw what land? A spaceship or something. I saw it. You're being funny. No, it's the truth, I tell you. And the policemen, two of them, they did the same thing to them. Who did what? Please, Jim, you got to believe me. We've got to help. We've got to help dad. All right, David. Just take it easy. Where are you going? You just wait here. I'm going to make a phone call. You're going to call Dad. No, you mustn't. Uh, don't worry. I'll be right back. Then David runs to the police station for help. He wants to speak to the police chief. He notices that the police chief has the same strange mark on the back of his neck like his father. The police chief orders him locked up until he can find his father. Got to see the chief right away. The chief, huh? Must be very important. Please, you don't understand. I gotta see him. Now, now, settle down, son. What's the trouble? You can tell me. No, I gotta see the chief. But that's what I'm here for. Anybody who wants to see the chief has to tell me why first. I can't. There's no time. Besides, oh, please, let me see him. Besides what? It's, it's you wouldn't believe me and... Well, what makes you think the chief will? What's the trouble, Mac? Well, you got me. The kid here's got something so important that he can't tell anybody but you, on account of I wouldn't believe him. Are you the chief? That's me. What can I do for you? I want to talk to you alone. In here. What's on your mind? Well, sir, it's kind of hard to explain, but... Start at the beginning. What's your name? David McLean, sir. Are you George McLean's boy? Yes, sir. But I don't want my father to know about it. Then they come in here. Just a minute. Let me go. Let me out of here. They got him. I saw it. You killed him, Mike Taylor. Put him in the detention room. I'll have his old man come and get him. What's biting him? He's out of his mind, that's what. Oh, come on, son. Settle down. Take it easy. It's on his neck, too. Please don't let my father get me. Please don't let him search for my father. They'll drag me down like they think Kathy. I know they will. You leaving? Lock that crazy kid up? Yeah. He's really scared. You think maybe we ought to... Uh... This old man will take care of him. If he doesn't answer the phone, I'll go out and find him. The desk sergeant calls Dr. Pat Blake to come and talk to David. David tells her his story. She calls Dr. Kelston to talk to him about David. As Dr. Blake is talking on the phone to Dr. Kelston, David's parents show up at the police station. His parents try to take David with them, but Dr. Blake refuses to release him and places David under protective custody. Hi. Who are you? I'm Dr. Blake, David. What kind of doctor? I'm not sick. I know you're not, but Sergeant Finley said you had a story to tell. A confidential story. Doctors are sort of like ministers. You can tell them anything. So he thought maybe I might do. Could I see the back of your neck? What kind of nonsense is that? Sure you can. Help yourself. All right? Yes, I guess so. 
Well? I'll only tell you. Is it all right? Sure, we'll get along fine. Won't we, David? Have any trouble, just yell. Now. Well, it started last night. I was looking through my telescope. And that's the honest truth. I know they're under there, but I don't know what they do to people. But once they're down there, they act differently? Gosh, yes. If you know my dad, there isn't anybody like him. Not anybody. But today, he acted like somebody I never saw before. You ask my mom, she'll tell you. I have the same idea, David. Then you believe me? I don't know. It sounds so unbelievable. And yet... You wait here, David. You're not gonna leave me. No, I'll be right back. Me and I won't run away. I know you won't, but I have to obey the rules. Well? It's a new one on me. Did two policemen report the disappearance of George McLean this morning? And the search of the field behind his house? No. But they'd have to report a call like that, wouldn't they? Even if he turned up later? Sure. You gotta report everything in quintuplicate. Is the chief in? No, he isn't back yet. Is it all right if I use his phone? Help so. Please. I'm Mrs. McLean. Well, I'm glad you're here. I saw Chief Barrows at the bank. He said David was here. He's here, all right. He's had a little scare. He'll just wait. I'll get him. Hello, Stu. Oh, hi, Pat. Yeah? Well, sure I know David. Yeah, he just called me a little while ago. I was out. Used to use our telescope here before things got so hush-hush. Well, no, no. No, not David. He's a pretty realistic young fella. Oh, sure you can, Pat. Oh, wait. Well, this may sound silly, but David tells me he's seen a spaceship. Mom! Mom! Come, David. Hey, listen to me. It causes enough trouble. Come on. Just a minute. Sergeant, that boy is not to leave this building. Who are you? I'm Dr. Blake from the City Health Department, and your son is in my care. He is not. Chief Barrows told my I don't wife... care what anybody told her. The boy stays here. What has he been telling you? He's been reading those trashy science fiction magazines. He's completely out of control. It may interest you to know, Mrs. McLean, that your son is running a high temperature. His heart action is unnaturally fast. It's too soon to tell, but there's every symptom of polio, and I'm having him removed to the isolation ward in the general hospital. No, he has to go with us. If he's better in the morning, we'll discuss it then. Now, you listen to me. We don't want you telling a lot of those idiotic stories. Understand? George, you know we can't leave him here. We have to Shh. take him. Never mind. It can't be helped now. Come on. Mom, too. That's the coldest pair I ever saw. They're not. They're wonderful. They've done something to them. Something awful. Oh, well, come on, son. I'll wrap you up real warm and take you to the hospital. It's all right. There's nothing the matter with him. It's a good thing I talked to Stuart Kelston about you. He found out that you were the cold scientific type. 
not given to flights of fancy. Do you know Dr. Kelston? Mm-hmm. He's my favorite astronomer. Come on, David, let's get out of here before we get into trouble. But the chief... You tell the chief he's in my care. With the help of local astronomer Dr. Stuart Kelston, Dr. Blake and David soon realize the flying saucer is likely from the planet Mars, now in close orbital proximity to Earth. We're afraid you might laugh at us. I'm not laughing. What do you think it's all about, Stu? Possibly what David thought it was. A spaceship? From where? Could be from a mothership in a free orbit, just above the Earth's atmosphere. But where's this mothership from? David, from the Earth's point of view, which planet is nearest to us right now? Venus? Correct. But I should have said, which planet is nearest to us in its particular orbit? Mars. Right. Only about 30 million miles away. And here we are, moving around the sun. Going more than 100,000 miles an hour. And if we ever left our orbit, we could reach Mars within a few days. Let's take a look through the telescope, shall we? If Mars ever left their orbit, they could reach us. But 100,000 miles an hour, wouldn't the friction burn them up? In space, there's no atmosphere, so no friction. But it's a spaceship. Where could it go? What, right in the ground? I saw it. Oh, it can't be underground. Can't is what our grandparents said about the airplane. Besides, we know nothing about these people, if they are people. What do you mean? Here we are. We do know this. There isn't enough oxygen on Mars, and the surface is too cold to support human life as we know it. There is a theory, consequently, that their cities are underground, near some central core of heat or that they live in spaceships. You don't believe that. I'm a scientist. But it can't be proved. It can't be disproved either. Could you disprove, for example, that the Martians have bred a race of synthetic humans to save themselves from extinction? Synthetic humans? The theory calls them mutants. Mutants? What would they want here? Coral bluffs? There you are. Let's focus now. A rocket? I thought they were testing some sort of atomic device out there. It is an atomic device. The highest powered rocket ever conceived. You see, once we can shoot a rocket far enough into space, it will just anchor there. Then it's merely a matter of time before we set up interplanetary stations equipped with atomic power and operated by remote control. And if any nation dared attack us, just by pushing a few buttons, we could wipe them out in a matter of minutes. And you think it's on account of the rocket well, that they... Put the shoe on the other foot. Say you're a Martian. With the aid of these mutants, you've, you've developed a way of life to save your race. Giant ships floating in space with sufficient oxygen to sustain life. Then the inhabitants of another planet start shooting powerful rockets, endangering your zone of survival. Wouldn't you want to do something about it? But Stu, it's fantastic. So is the airplane. But look how it adds up. What's David's father? He's an engineer over at the Armstead plant. What's made at that plant, David? Gosh, I don't know. Dad will never talk. Because the plant your dad works at is where the whole motor assembly for that rocket was made. But what did they want with little Kathy Wilson? Nothing, David. But Kathy's father is Dr. William Wilson. The physicist? The man who conceived that rocket and whose house was burned down. What do they do to Kathy? How do they make her set fire to her house? What have they done to my mother and father? Dr. Kelston, you know them. You know how nice they are. I don't know the answer to that one, David. Not yet, but we'll find out. 
Now let's take a look at the place where you saw that light disappear. While looking through the observatory telescope, they witnessed David's father, Lord General Maybury, to the sand pit. Dr. Kelston calls Colonel Fielding and tells him David's story and what just happened to General Maybury. Colonel Fielding informs the Pentagon of the situation, and they send troops and tanks. Colonel Fielding places an all-points bulletin out for General Mayberry, the two policemen, Blaine and Jackson, the police chief, and David's parents. The fence, the wooden fence. It used to stretch all the way across the sand pit. I hadn't noticed it before. It's gone. Increase the magnification. The path stops, too. Dad! Closer, Dr. Kelston. What? Well, it's General Maybury. The one you tried to get on the telephone? Yes, he's in command at Carl Bluffs. Dad sent for him. He's trying to stop the Martians. Just like Kathy. Oh, not his father. They have got his father. Now they've got General Mabry. Colonel Fielding comes and talks to David in person. David tells the colonel everything he knows. Colonel Fielding goes to the Wilson house to talk to Kathy, but she has died from a brain hemorrhage. Then you came, sir, and, and that's all. Well, thank you, David. That was a very clear account. Now, can you tell us where we can find this little Kathy girl, the one who set fire to a house? Where does she live? Just down the road. It burned down. Mr. Turner know where they are, though. He's her next-door neighbor. Good. I'd like you all to come with me. Poor woman, she's almost out of her mind. Who's to blame her? First she loses her home, and then her little girl, just like that. You say she died instantly? Yes, it was almost a matter of seconds. One minute she was playing, just as she always did. The next she keeled over, as if she'd been poleaxed. Okay, Mr. Turner, thank you. Just a minute, Colonel. What was the report on the cause of her death? Cerebral hemorrhage, they said. I see. Thank you, Mr. Turner. Uh, where's Rinaldi? Still in the house, sir. I guess he's still on the phone. You know, Colonel, I think I'd like to go down to the hospital and take a look at that little girl. Cerebral hemorrhage just doesn't make sense for a young child like that. But if she has a scar on the back of her neck... Well, you're right. I'll have my driver take you. Oh, any authority that you need to get through the police or our own patrols, Dr. Jones will be it. Uh, we'll be at the McLean place. Thank you, Colonel. Colonel Fielding and his aide, Sergeant Rinaldi, Dr. Kelston and David go to David's house to take a look at the sand pit. Sergeant Rinaldi slips away from the group and heads out to the sand pit and is sucked underneath the sand. They surround the area with men and tanks. Dr. Blake returns with information about Kathy's death. Sergeant, I thought I issued orders no one was allowed to. What's you, Doctor? Find anything? I found something very interesting. The autopsy showed this. It was cerebral hemorrhage. What do you make of this, Red? Seems to be some sort of crystal attached to what looks like a piece of platinum. Where was this located? At the base of the skull. When that globe exploded in the brain, it caused a hemorrhage. And that's what killed her. Mom, Dad. I'll take it easy, son. They're not going to use a complicated device like this just to kill people. It involves surgery we've never known possible. You know what I think, Colonel? I think this little device attached to the brain is some method of control. We've made white mice follow directional impulses with high-frequency oscillation. Now, theoretically, there's Do you no... mean that those Martians out there could be giving instruction right now to the people they've operated on, and they do exactly as they were told? 
Possibly, and then when they've served their purpose, they, they could loose a wave that would detonate that little bulb in the brain. No! His parents have been operated on. Colonel, I think we can reproduce this. What for? Well, if we had a reception unit like theirs, we might be able to get in on their wavelength. And intercept the messages. No, not that. You see, their messages would be just meaningless impulses to us, but we might be able to locate their point of origin. Well, get going, Captain. Yes, sir. The people that are controlled by the Martians are committing acts of sabotage. Officers Blaine and Jackson blow up the plant where David's father works. The Martians kill them after they complete their job. General Mayberry and the police chief are killed by military police while trying to destroy the rocket ship. David's parents are apprehended by the military police after they try to kill Dr. Wilson. While Colonel Fielding and his men are searching for the Martian spaceship, Dr. Blake and David are suddenly sucked underground. They are captured by two tall mutants and taken through underground tunnels to the Flying Saucer. Inside the Flying Saucer, they confront the Martian mastermind. It is a giant green head with a human face on top of a small green partial torso with several green tentacles, which is encased in a transparent sphere. The Martian mastermind is served by two tall green mutants. Sergeant Rinaldi, under the Martian's control, questions Dr. Blake. She refuses to answer, and the mutants try to implant a mind control device in Dr. Blake's neck. Colonel Fielding and his troops locate and blows open an entrance to the tunnels and fight their way to the spaceship entrance. They enter the spaceship and rescue Dr. Blake before they can implant the device in her neck. Colonel Fielding's men plant timed explosive charges aboard the saucer. The mutants block their escape route. They find David and Sergeant Rinaldi in one of the tunnels. David uses one of the Martian ray guns to open a path to the surface. Colonel Fielding orders everyone to get away from the sand pit. David runs downhill away from the sand pit. As he does, an extended montage of flashbacks of the film's important events are superimposed over close-ups of his face, including several scenes played backwards for surreal effect. These are intercut with alternating shots of army artillery opening fire on the sandpit or close-ups of the ticking timer slowly approaching zero. Over this climactic montage plays the wavering ethereal choral score that has punctuated prior scenes, now indicating the saucer's drive is powering up to depart. Following a large explosion, David is suddenly back in his bed. Thunder and lightning are heard again as in the beginning of the movie. He runs to his parents' bedroom confused and frightened. They reassure him that he was just having a bad dream, telling him to go back to sleep. Dad! Are you all right? Of course we're all right. What's the matter, son? That lightning scare you? No, it wasn't that. Didn't you go to the hospital? Why, no, we've been sleepy. There's nothing to be afraid of. Oh, now, what's wrong? It was horrible. I thought they'd done something awful to you. They are green, they had a ray gun, and the fence was gone. Across the sandpit. Well, let's go out and have a look at it. It's back well, now. Well, if it's back and we're the same, then you were dreaming, son. I guess so, only... Go to sleep now. Having returned to his bed, more wind and louder thunder is heard. David then climbs out of his bed again, goes to his window, and sees the very same flying saucer of his dream slowly descending into the sandpit. And that's the end of the movie. Here's the question. Is David still asleep, trapped in a reoccurring nightmare? 
or was his bad dream a premonition of a now real event? And now it's time for some movie trivia. Invaders from Mars was originally planned to be shot in 3D. The special effects department used condoms to create the bubbles on the walls of the underground Martian tunnels. Boiling oatmeal and red food color was used to show the Martian ray gun melting through solid rock. Barbara Billingsley was uncredited for her role as Dr. Kelston's secretary. This was actually one of the first science fiction scripts written in the 1950s. The revised version of the script was completed in September 1950. The film wasn't produced until 1952 and released in early 1953. In 1957, this film was being shown on a double bill with This Island Earth. Little people were chosen to double the main characters when an action shot by one of the mutants was required. Six mutants, ranging from the size 5 foot 1 to 6 foot 3, acted in these shots with little people to keep the size ratio correct. This was necessary because the primary mutants were 8 foot 2 and 7 foot 7, and rather ungainly in their movements due to costuming restrictions. The eerie sandpit choir chant was done by a choral group made of eight men and eight women. Moreover, said chant was further enhanced with echo in post-production to give it a more haunting and ethereal quality. In one scene, Dr. Kelston refers to the Lubbock Lights and to Captain Mantell. These were real-life UFO events that created a national-wide sensation in their day. The photographs shown by Dr. Kelston were actual photographs of the Lubbock Lights that appeared in newspapers and magazines. The sandpit opening and closing was done by cutting a long slit into a piece of heavy canvas and inserting a large funnel. A hose from a powerful vacuum was attached to the funnel and the whole thing was covered with sand. The vacuum was activated and the sand was sucked down for the shots of the sandpit opening. The film was simply reversed for the shots of the sandpit closing. And that's all I have for uh, trivia. Here are my comments about the movie. I watched the 2002 DVD release from Image Entertainment. It's part of the Wade Williams collection. I picked it up from Amazon for about 7 bucks. It comes with both U.S. and British versions of the movie. The theatrical trailer, a still gallery, and an 8-page illustrated collector's handbook. The booklet is filled with some information about the making of the movie. The DVD comes in a keepsake case, and the artwork on the case is excellent. I watched both versions of the movie. The British version has some added footage to the observatory scene, and they changed the ending from a dream sequence to a more conventional ending with the Martian sp spaceship being blown up as it takes off. I I'm kind of torn between the two versions. I like the U.S. version, but I also like the British version because they give you that, that more background in the observatory scene. But I really like the dream sequence because that's very cool because you don't know if it's a dream. You don't know if he's stuck in a nightmare or is this a premonition? It's it, I like that. So I wish you could combine both of them and then you'd get the both the best version. I think if you combine them, the picture and sound quality were OK. It's one of those older movies. It needs to be remastered. You know, there's there's some sound effects and there's some visual effects on the film. So it's kind of eh, it's OK. All of the actors in this movie did a great job, especially Jimmy Hunt. He was great in this movie. The story was excellent. I mean, think about it. A kid sees a flying saucer land in his backyard and nobody believes him. And one by one, everybody in his life is taken over by the Martians. That's a great story. There's a great subplot to this movie, too. 
And it's something we've seen in other science fiction movies of the 1950s, where we have an alien race that has been checking us out from afar. You know, the Martians are looking at us and they see that we're getting spaceships and nuclear power and they really don't want us to be out in space. Kind of similar to the day the Earth stood still when Klaatu and Gort came here because we're getting rockets and nuclear power and they don't want us going anywhere. Or similar to War of the Worlds where the Martians are looking at us going, hmm, I, I, I think we should move over there. So, it's, you know, it, it's a common plot in science fiction movie. But like I said, it's a great story. There are a few, few things that I don't like about this movie. The use of stock footage. Man, did they use a lot of stock footage in this movie. I could not believe how much stock footage they used. I mean, there's probably 10 minutes of World War II stock footage in this movie. Another thing I hated about this movie was the recycling of shots. There's a couple shots in there where the parents are driving the car, getting away from the MPs, and they drive to the left. And what they did in this movie was flip it, so now they're driving to the right. And they did that so many times in this movie. And it's just, oh. This movie, without the stock footage and the recycling of shots, probably would have been 15 minutes shorter. So that means the movie would have been like an hour long. The last thing that I really hate about this movie was the mutant costumes. Oh, my God. Huge green vinyl onesies with the zipper in the back. You could actually see the zippers. I first saw this movie when I was about 10 or 11 years old, about the same age as Jimmy Hunt's character in the movie. This movie gave me nightmares when I was a kid. That's why I probably remember this movie so vividly. Over the years, I've seen this movie 20, 30 times. Who knows how many times I can hear that, that music of the sand I can hear that music today and think of being sucked down into the sand. So if I'm on the beach and I hear that music, I'm taking off running. Seriously. This is a great movie. If you haven't seen it, please check it out. I would recommend this movie to all science fiction fans. I'll give this movie an 8 out of 10. And those are my comments about this movie. Before I end this week's podcast, I'd like to thank Rico again for giving me another opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I'd also like to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoy it. Take care, everybody. This is M5, signing off. Trucks in Cyber.